Welcome everyone. Welcome to our conference on legal rights and clearances. So I'm going to uh, introduce our speakers today. Uh, we have Gabriella Ludlow from Cinepoint Advisors. We have Rosalind Lichter from Lichter Law. So welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you. Okay. Um, so, why don't we begin um, by first asking each of our speakers to tell us a bit about themselves and their background. Let's we'll start with, uh, with Roz. Uh, oh, right here. Okay. 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 So, I have been practicing law for the last 25 years. I'm a graduate of Cardozo Law School. It took me 13 years in between uh, college and law school uh, to figure out that I no longer wanted to be in politics, uh, which I was, and I went to law school specifically to be an entertainment lawyer, which I opened a practice. 1987, 1988, I learned how to be a lawyer at a smaller firm, litigation firm unrelated to entertainment prior to that. Uh, my focus is film and television, and of course everybody's focus is, you know, dealing with streaming platforms. Uh, I've served as production counsel, and basically most of my practice is on the talent side, directors, writers, and producers. I hardly represent any actors. I do a lot of writers, and the production counsel comes in every once in a while, and I'm a professor at NYU's uh, Tisch School of the Arts, and I teach uh, entertainment law for Tisch students. And prior to that, I was a professor, adjunct professor at Cardozo Law School, where I taught entertainment law and contract drafting for about 15 years. And I have two dogs, <laughs> mm -hmm. who I didn't bring, because they're not service dogs. <laughs> Bummer. This has been the best part of the show, I think, if you'd brought your dogs. <clears throat> My name is Gabriella Ludlow. I um, have sort of an uh, unusual trajectory to be where I am right now. Um, I have my own consulting firm. I've had it for about the last 10 years. Um, I came up through corporate business affairs as opposed to the traditional law school route and that sort of thing. Um, so I learned pretty much everything on the job, uh, but I was in the music business. So when I uh, decided to switch over, a very good friend of mine, Allison Cohen, was a partner at a law firm. and. Um, I went over and worked with her and started doing film, and I found it incredibly fascinating, mainly because it's, it's just so complex. It just, you can never know everything. And I'm fascinated by the fact that it's 15, 20 years later, and I still, every day, say, oh, wow, okay, we have to figure that one out. Um, so it's just endlessly uh, challenging, and especially with the changing landscape. So, um, I, I work as production legal, uh, so to speak, on many, many films, probably done about over 150 feature films. We uh, pretty much specialize in narrative feature filmmaking. We don't really work a lot in documentaries. Um, we do uh, some development work, but again, with the goal of being a feature film as opposed to uh, series projects, although I have worked on a couple of series. I don't love that work, so I don't look for it. Um, <clears throat> and that's about it. I mean, I, our value is basically to help 
producers and guide them through with a business head on through the whole process as opposed to just a legal head or you know just know what questions to ask whether it's from your lawyer that's specializing in a certain area or it's your accountant or whatever but just thinking of it holistically as a business um, and what problems come up. Um, so my first question is um, before entering into a distribution deal are there any uh, certain legal issues that filmmakers should be aware of when presented with uh, well, the, that's the deal. everything. <laughs> that's kind of the end point. Uh, I think that what I say to my students and to other people is the most significant part is that you own what you're trying to sell or distribute. And that that's the word own is a big deal. It's whether you have all the underlying rights, chain of title, to every distribution outlet that your distributor wants. So that means having uh, ownership of a literary property, if it's based on a book or a poem or a, a play, having actors' agreements, having production design agreements and, and crew agreements and uh, all the above-the-line agreements, including as a production design being one of them, but all the department heads approvals to make sure that any approvals that either your actors or your novelists or your playwrights had make sure that everything is complied with. So the most important thing I think is to go back to the beginning and make sure all those chains, that's why we call it chain of title, all link up. And uh, you know to make sure that uh, you have what you're selling. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I feel like we're constantly sort of when we're dealing with producers that don't do this, you know, over and over and over and haven't done, you know, 10 or 15 films before. <clears throat> it's almost like you have to start with the end and then go go to the beginning. So if you have in mind what you will need to deliver to a distributor, because that's who's going to pay you. That's what you want. Right. At the end of the day, you want that that money to pay back your investors to to do what you have to do. <clears throat> You have to have all these ducks in a row. So one of the things that we always stress is try to get your hands on a, a decent uh, delivery schedule from a sales agent, from you know a distributor, and look through that and understand at the end of the day what you're going to have to deliver. Um, and you know it all becomes the chain of title at the end of the day. Okay, so right on your wrist, <laughs> all rights, whether now known <clears throat> or hereafter devised. Make sure that's in all of your agreements. And the reason I say that is because rights develop as technology and customs develop. And there have been many lawsuits over the years where uh, people, did, studios did not have the rights to certain music. Right, for the internet, for streaming, for video. So make sure that magic language is in all your agreements. And while it's not perfect, it is uh, certainly something you should have in all your agreements. Yeah, I would actually also just highlight the music aspect because I think a lot of people, you know, they go to the to the licensors for music. First of all, it's the last thing they budget for. They usually don't have enough money to do it. So they go out and they try to do what they're called step deals or whatever, where they get, maybe they get the rights for festivals and then they can option to get all rights or they option to get digital or whatever. Um, you just understand you're going to have to pay for that at some point. Like festivals only going to get you so far and you're probably going to have to pay for it before you actually deliver it to the distributor. So 
you can't really count on the distribution money to pay for those licenses. So I, I always stress just keep in mind those kinds of things that people tend to put off and think, uh, we'll take care of it later, we'll do it later when it happens. And I understand why they do that, but it, ultimately it's a headache. You know, also, <coughs> it's an advantage to pre-negotiate. Yep. You know, do a step deal for music, which is if you pre-negotiate and you get festival rights and you negotiate for U.S. rights or you negotiate for worldwide rights, at least at the time it's triggered, right? You don't pay for it up front, but at the time you're doing a U.S. distribution deal or territory by territory, you've negotiated that. So you're not held up with a gun at your head. Whether it's music or whether it's archival material, whether what, whatever it is. Um, I will say this, though, for music, or, well, or archival, whatever, to do a split rights for U.S. and international is not such a great idea anymore because of all the, the, dis yeah, no, the no, digital I distributors. I, I say that <clears throat> as an old person. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I really do mean all rights, whether now known or hereafter devised. You're absolutely right. If, if a screenwriter... Um, writes a script that's um, based on, let's say, a novel um, or it's, um, it's a biopic, can they begin trying to sell it or option it without having the right to that person's life or to that book or whatever it may be? Well, two, two very different uh, uh, underlying properties there. I would not spend time on writing a screenplay for anything I don't have the right I would not spend time on writing a screenplay on a book that I didn't have the rights to because any author or author's estate is not obligated just because you like it they're not obligated and I've been in situations where particularly new filmmakers say I'm going to I'm going to write a screenplay based on this book and they're going to love the screenplay. I just know it. And then I said, well, do you have the rights? And, and they say, no, but we'll get them. And I say, I think you just have to be prepared that it might be a waste of your creative energies and your, and your time. Life rights is a m much different kind of deal. And I am a very con conservative when it comes to life rights. I believe that you should sec secure life rights and not rely on whether something's in the public domain or whether it's a public personality and therefore you have the right to j just about do or say anything about that public personality. One, I do a lot of right, rights deals. I did, um, I did a recent movie called Welcome to Marwin uh, based on a documentary, Marwin Call, with Kate Blanchett played my client. I've also uh, did... Uh, that, that was Steve Carell, and Kate Blanchett did, did another film that I was involved in and represented the life rights holder. What I mean by conservative is that I like to get the rights. One, it demonstrates to the community, hey, we sewed up these rights. And two, you get maybe the benefit of some other information that's not in the public domain. And you also get the benefit of releasing you of claims from those from those individuals, right? I mean, that's really what you're going after because there is no copyright to a life rights story. 
there is only rights of privacy, publicity, and all those kinds of things that if they're alive, they still hold and have control over. So you have to be really careful. So what you're going to end up is your financiers are not going to want to invest in your project unless they know that no claim is going to come in. And the only way you get, a, you get away with doing it without that is to go to a fair use attorney, someone who's very specialized in this, who will write you a legal opinion, which costs you money to get, and will tell you the parameters in which you can, you can write your screenplay or, or do your movie on. Um, and then you'll be covered by insurance. It doesn't mean you won't get a claim still. It just means that your insurance will cover that claim. Um, so it's very tricky, as Ra says, and I, I agree that most financiers, most distributors like to just see those tied up nice and neat so that they don't get those claims. Um, in terms of the, um, in, with life rights, are there certain uh, aspects of that that are in the public domain? Like if something in an individual's life has been in the news, it's been in the media, it's known about that, let's just say so-and-so, some celebrity got a divorce or something, it's out there. Can that be portrayed on film without having the, the life rights? Like how does that, how would that? Well, if all you're, if all you're telling a story about the divorce, perhaps, uh, you don't need the rights, and you got to make sure that, by the way, that they did get a divorce, and do your <laughs> due diligence, because what you read in the Times or the Post is not necessarily true. So, yeah, you could say that they got a divorce, but, uh, you know, some people are public figures for certain purposes and are not for other purposes. So, again, I would, I would be on the conservative side, and try to get the life rights. If you can't get the life rights, uh, a couple of consequences. One, you may not get the benefit of the whole story, and you may not, uh, as Gabrielle said, you may not get the benefit of other people who are in that story. And three, uh, it you may set yourself up, as Gabby said, uh, for lawsuits. The Sure, can you go out and do a film about George W. Bush? I'm, I'm sure Vice did not get anybody's rights. Um, and, but a public fi figure is, is held to, I don't know whether you call it a lower standard or a higher standard, in order to maintain a defamation suit. Uh, but again, if you want to do something about uh, George Bush or Donald Trump or Bill Clinton that is right out there, um, sure, go ahead. But and there's a difference between portraying, be very interesting. portraying something as fact versus an opinion, right? So, so anybody can have opinion about someone, especially you know, if they're a celebrity or whatever, but they can't base it as a fact. They can't say this actually happened. And I think that's where it gets a little cloudy sometimes. So let's say you're portraying um, a famous court case and you actually use the transcripts from that case, and the actors are literally saying the, the words from that transcript, that you wouldn't have to get any sort of rights for, right? I mean, that's in well, the public domain. We did that in a, in a uh, theater. Uh, we, we did a, one of my clients did a show called Groundhog, and it was based, uh, it was a musical and it played at Manhattan Theater Club, and it was based on a trial of a homeless woman who became a cause celebrity uh, in the 80s under the Koch administration. And we didn't get anybody's rights except we got uh, the, the, we bought the transcripts. So, and adhered to the transcripts. 
And then you do, you do do a risk analysis in terms of whether there is going to be somebody whose rights you may not get and can't get, and you could do a First Amendment analysis, you could do a risk analysis, or you could combine the two. And that's where you need you know, good counsel who is going to advise you on the fair use aspects as well as the other kinds of claims that come in to that big envelope of claims. Which, you know, doesn't apply at all to optioning a book, right? So a book is a completely different thing, even if the book, the book is based on factual elements. Um, you know, once something is in a tangible form, it has a copyright all of its own. So if you're following the same, you know, outline and, and the way that it's been <clears throat> structured and all that kind of stuff from a book, then you may be in violation of copyright law as opposed to, you know, a, laws of publicity and that sort of thing. Okay, and now, in terms of music, uh, licensing the rights to music. Now, let's say this, it's, a, it's a cover song. Let's say another artist covered a song and you're using that version of it. Do you still need to get the rights from the original record label? Well, it depends because um, you, if you're trying to imitate the original artist, then you may get a claim. If it's completely a new recording, then no. You still have to get the, the license from the underlying composition, right? Because that's, that's a separate copyright. The song itself is a separate copyright owned by the publishers. So you'd have to get that no matter what. But as far as the, the record label, which owns the actual recording of that song, you would then go through the, the process of saying, did we do this just to sound like the other one so that we didn't have to go get that permission, right? Then that would be the claim that you're just mimicking and then you really should have gotten permission in the first place and you didn't. Uh -huh. Or it's a whole new original recording and that's fine. Okay. Yeah, if it's I mean, a work for hire. If the publisher will get mechanical royalties. Yeah. Which is... Well, no, they'll get sync royalties for film. They'll get mechanical royalties if it's on an album. Right, on a master. Well, if it's put on an album, that's a mechanical yeah, yeah. royalty. Well, yeah, sync right, royalties right. if it's in the film. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, my music business is coming back to me okay, gotcha. <laughs> for all these years. Did you, did somebody have a, yeah. Go ahead, yeah. What if, what if somebody is singing a song? On camera. But on camera, but no, but like there's no music, but they're singing or singing Doesn't matter. You still have to get this publishing to clear the publishing for that song. Publishing You're, is copyright. Yeah, is it's a separate copyright. So even if they're, they're Absolutely. A lot of, lot of lawsuits, which you don't want to be part of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, your performance, your on artist's camera, performance yeah. on camera is covered by their actor agreement. So you don't have to get some sort of special agreement with the singer on camera, necessarily. Um, but yes, the underlying composition is another, it's a copyrighted word. It's like saying, I would quote from a book. Right? If I would quote from a book, you have to get that cleared. It's, it's not original. Come on, tell us your horror stories. And we'll, <laughs> we'll fix them right now. <laughs> oh, good, oh luck. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> or just that. Yeah. Uh, and now, again, back to the life rights. Uh, what if it's a documentary? Um, do you st still have to get any sort of rights if the person's willing to open up on, on screen and speak about their life? Well, I mean, we do uh, rights agreements for documents, uh, documentaries all the time. The, uh, 
you're you're asking the person to be on screen, right? So you need a release from that person that you can use his or her name or likeness. Uh, you are uh, probably getting some other information from that life rights holder that you would want to secure. You might be recording interviews from uh, other people as well as the life rights holder, and you'd want to secure the rights to those recordings. So the, the only thing that I run into when we're doing that kind of work is many of the rights holders will say, listen, I'm I'm going on a newscast, or I want to go on 60 Minutes, and I don't want to be prohibited from that. So what we do is we give some outs, and we say, you know, no longer than 8 or 10 minutes or whatever a 60-minute segment is, uh, you could do. It would not be an infringement of our exclusive rights to make a documentary. But I imagine there are some instances, because I don't do docs, so I'm asking, um, where you would be trying to get people to talk if they're a celebrity or some sort of public figure where they haven't signed any releases. You're just trying to get them to answer questions, right? Well, then, where... you, have a, then you have another <clears throat> area that I do a little bit of whether something is newsworthy and whether something you, there's impossibility of getting a release or... Uh, or your First Amendment right as a, as a filmmaker, as a documentarian, to, uh, to try to get that person on camera because you would never get a release. And it's written in because that person doesn't want to talk. They'll, they may, you know, not, they may go off screen and not let you film. That's their privacy. You have a question? A, a way to protect yourself if you didn't do your due diligence, you, in the documentary, you got the person to interview and you have, let's say, email chains and they agree to it, but then have them sign a release and like two or three years later come back. Is there some kind of protection that you might be able to have, being that you have a chain that they agree to it, what it was for, but not so much their name or signature on so, I mean, I, I, and I'm quoting Donaldson Califf because they do a lot of this fair use opinion work and all that sort of thing. But one of the, the suggestions he's given me from time to time is that as long as you film them, when, before you start filming them, say, you understand, like today's the date, right? And you're here to be interviewed and you agree to interview, right? Even if you get that on camera, that that's fine. You don't necessarily... I mean, it's always good to have a signed release, right? But if you didn't do that and you actually got them to agree that, yes, I'm agreeing to be an interviewed for this purpose on this day and this time, then that could be sufficient. Um, did somebody else have a... Was there another question? Yes. Well, first of all, let me just stop you there. You're not going to use the word idea. Ideas are not copyrightable. They, they float in the universe. And so anybody could take them. Okay? So you're talking about something you've written. Yeah, like a screenplay or a comic book. Treatment or something. Or a treatment or something. Yeah, treatment. And, and I'm sorry, what's the question? Uh, what are the protections that you can make before you pitch? Like a studio or a production company to protect your career. So are there any protections other 
mean, okay. I mean, you need to register it. I mean, and this is what I always tell people. Like, if you have something really tangible and flushed out and you're going to do pitching, whether it's a treatment, whether it's a screenplay, whether it's a comic book, register at the Copyright Office. It costs $55. You can do it online. It is not expensive and it's not difficult. Um, you know, a lot of people register with a WGA, um, and that's free, I guess, even if you're not a WGA member. But for $55, like, get the added protection of the Copyright Office. Um, it makes no sense not to do it. Yes, and you have to do this. Some new cases that have come down, and you have to do it before an infringement action. Right. And uh, you can't do it after exactly. you're suing somebody. It's a recent case. But uh, I think Gabby's absolutely right in terms of you get a lot more protection. Now, a lot of producers and studios and agencies will not accept an unsolicited manuscript or screenplay or treatment without you signing a submission agreement which essentially gives you your rights away. But there is something now in California, a little bit in New York, about an implied contract where you didn't necessarily sign the submission agreement, or you did, but they accepted it, and there's some kind of contract that there's a duty to you to either perform or to reject. The laws, for me, is a little hazy, but it's a little uh, thing that you keep in the back of your head when you talk to your lawyer. It's also why people have lawyers and people like that represent them, because then it's not considered unsolicited, so to speak. Yes. <clears throat> question. Um, I'm writing a screenplay that's set in the 2001, so pop culture plays a big character in it, and I'm wondering like, if there's a shot with like a poster on the wall of Britney Spears, like, what kind of rights like, would you have to that person's likeness, or what kind of workarounds have you seen If, if Britney Spears' poster happens to be somewhere in the background of your shoot and it's not featured in your movie, and I mean an incidental use, best example would be McDonald's arches. It's almost impossible to shoot a film in New York without seeing the arches. But once you're talking about Britney Spears being an element in the story that you're telling, she has rights of privacy and rights of publicity. And then also the photographer who shot or painted or shot her picture has some rights. So you have to be very careful, and that's, again, why you might have a fair use lawyer on your your team. And it also depends on who you're delivering to. Uh, You know, some... Some distributors have a very sort of high tolerance for risk, and others just don't. So if you're going to deliver to Universal, you better have cleared that thing because they're never going to give you complete delivery until you did. But if you delivered maybe to Paramount, they might not care as much, or Netflix, they may not care as much. Um, it, you know, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's, it's hard to answer that question in a vacuum. Yeah. What if you had a, a partner? Now I have reformed it with the people from Brooklyn. 
making it a play to work together for as a theater thing. Now, it was copyrighted back then under the Universal Copyright Convention. However, when I sent up to Washington, Charlie, Charlie did that, and they have no record. Now it's being redeveloped. So what I have to do, once the new song is done, send it up again. I'm not prepared to give you legal advice as specifically as you said, because I have, uh, can only give you legal advice knowing the full picture. So you seem to have a lot of facts there that I can't address. Right, I would retain a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, we have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you work for like a major television company. Uh, what steps are there to like secure stuff that you do outside of work? If the company like, has something weird that says that Yeah, you work for a television company? And you want to produce things independently. And how do you carve that out? You need to talk to your employer and have a contract that basically allows you to do that. Because if you're a full-time employee, you're theirs. <clears throat> okay, uh, yeah. Occasionally lectured at uh, at NYU in the in the writing program, not the business program, and most of the students there will, if they're going to a lab, uh, will not get the underlying rights, uh, and I don't know how. I. I mean, I think you should get the underlying rights for a particular use, but if. The, the question really becomes, is Sundance Col Collaboration Lab asking you, have you cleared the rights? And if you haven't, then you have to go get the rights. Okay. In, in terms of an educational use, that may be a fair use, and it may come under an umbrella that if you're just writing something for an educational use or an educational purpose, and it doesn't affect the market, of that book or the underlying property. I mean, there's there are a lot of steps, right? Uh, then you're okay. But again, it's very fact-specific. So I don't like to give general answers, but to, to, just to tell you anecdotally, a lot of students at NYU will write something based on a New Yorker article, and they don't get the rights. And basically, it's used for screen... Uh, screenplay writing uh, course where, you know, the other students are commenting on the work. But don't think just because you wrote it, then you can go exploit it. Then once you actually try to exploit it, you have to have gotten the rights. I mean, right? There's a difference between just using it for coursework. Any other um, All right, go ahead. Yeah. If you write for a coursework, but then that becomes part of it never gets made, but it's just part of the work portfolio as a writing sample. When you get the rights to that, you should show it. Can you just repeat? He, he wants, said, uh, yeah. 
You go. Yeah. No, you, uh, you'll make sure answer this. He wants to know if you can yeah. use something like that in a portfolio. Well, I, I would, with a, <coughs> uh, a, a strong disclaimer that you don't have the rights. And if you're not... Um, if you're not sending it around beyond your writing class and you're sending it around to professionals, it may be okay. But I think the producer who you're submitting to will ask you whether you have the underlying rights. It's, I think it's a gray area. I'm not sure how I come down on that. But I'm not sure who would make a claim, right? So at the end of the day, if you have the underlying rights author feels that you're infringing on his rights in some way that's, you know making him, I don't know, some sort of competition for his particular IP, you might get a claim. But if, if you're only submitting it as, as examples with the disclaimer of saying, I don't have the rights to this, this is just to show you what I can do as a writer, then, I mean, I, I think the risk is low, but that's my business opinion, not a legal one. Yes. If you're writing, say, a historical biopic, if someone on the live 150 years ago went to research it, you might use seven or eight or more historical texts. Are you at risk that the authors of these basically history books claim that they have rights to it, even though you cite them? Well, facts aren't copyrightable. So if it's just a fact, it's not copyrightable. It's how you put the facts together that becomes copyrightable. What about in terms of like the, the dialogue? Like you're portraying something that's a fact, right? But the way, let's say, the actors uh, portray that fact, the dialogue is fictional. Um, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, it's not well, any sort of... that's a separate copyrightable element. Yeah, exactly. So you would mm. copyright that? Yeah, that would be... I mean, unless you took it because some other historian said... I, you know, I read somewhere that he said this. You know what I mean? I mean, so yeah. there's, but again, if it's a fact, then it's a fact, and you just need to make sure that it's a fact and not rely on that historian to tell you that it is. Okay, let me just get <coughs> over here. Yeah. saying if, if she creates something and uses the score from another thing and puts it online like YouTube or whatever, was she supposed to clear the rights? Yes, you were supposed to clear the rights. I mean, cause I, yeah, especially on YouTube, you always see unlicensed I mean, they, con- yeah, exactly. uh, content. I mean, it happens all the time. Yeah. They'll just tell you to take it down. I mean, I don't know what, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. Did you have a question? If the copyright owner tells them that they're infringing, then, yeah, they'll send you a takedown notice. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Go ahead. Well, parody is fair use, but uh, you have to get somebody who is, you know, can understand uh, the difference between satire and parody, which the courts are, you yeah. know, sort of go back and forth on what's satire and what's parody. Parody, if it's pure parody, and and you might need a musicologist or you might need somebody else to, to determine whether it's parody, 
then it comes under fair use. But I warn you, fair use is a defense. That means somebody's suing you already. Yep. Right? So you're in, you're in the park of a lawsuit where you're paying lawyers, and, of course, that's why you need insur- errors and omissions insurance, right? Because you didn't do it with malice. You thought it was parity. You, your insurance company cleared it with you. They're insuring it. Okay. But you might have an insurance company, just going back a little bit, who say, uh, I, I don't think this is parity, so we're going to exclude that from any lawsuits. So remember, fair use is a defense. It's not something that's a fir- you know, that you are, you're avoiding court. And also, just keep in mind that if you do go to a lawyer to get a fair use opinion so that it is covered by insurance, make sure that that insurer will accept that lawyer's fair use opinion, right? Not, you can't just go get any lawyer to say, is this fair use, right? It has to be someone that the, the insurance company feels is authorized or, or experienced enough to make that opinion. Yeah, you have a question in the back? So let's say like, you're doing a project on an entire event um, with a documentary, so it's all factual, and you do all the necessary copywriting for it, it's okay. And now someone has tried to come to take a portion of that event to make a screenplay from it. Can you, do you have a defense, or is there another layer of copywriting that you should do to secure that... Um, you know, if it's a four-day event, they don't try to take one incident and try to make that into a screenplay. So let me just understand this. Um, it's a live event. You go there, you film it. Well, it's, you know, it's, a real, it's factual. It's a factual event that took place. But you, fi- how did you, so are you, right, so you're filming, you're filming it happening. Oh, I see. So you're recreating right. something that is factual. Right. So it's like a, a biopic, so to speak, if you were to do it on a person. Ah, that would be different, I, I think, Roz, don't you? That um, if you were to take... So if they were to create sort of something from a historical event, but they create it in, in a dramatic fashion, right, in a narrative fashion, then they've created a new copyright. Someone could not take that copyright or a portion of that copyright, and create a new screenplay. As long as the elements that you have created are original to you and they're using those same elements, I would say they would need your permission. But if they're going back and recreating the actual thing that happened just like you did, and it's not what you did, then they probably wouldn't need your permission. It's similar, change the name, and because it's factual... Exactly. I think so. I mean, it's... Well, it happens. I mean, you you have, you know, there was a kind of movie of the week about 15, 20 years ago about this woman that uh, slugged the wife of her lover, Amy, the Amy, 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 whatever. And there were, what was the last name again? Yeah, and there were three or four uh, (laughs) films made about it. One one production company (laughs) licensed the Newsday Reporter story. One production company uh, licensed the transcript or or used the transcripts. So you can't prevent anybody from... But if you create a dialogue that was original to you and they used that dialogue, which wasn't factual, then 
I suppose you might have a claim there, something like that. Well, the last thing, you don't want to be in court, yeah, by the exactly. way. <laughs> this is the message from both of us. Don't go to court. It's really expensive. Yeah. And also try to figure out how to make your, mon- your movie. And if you're in, busy in court, no matter how much money you have, you're not making your movie. Any other questions? Questions? Uh, yes, go ahead. Uh, back to well, listen, it, it really depends on your relationship with your employer. And under traditional law, you, you're work for hire. You're an employee. And anything related to your work is owned by the company you work for. So that's, that's the uh, black letter law, as we would call it. So if you're working in uh, the, I, you know, the IT department and you write a screenplay, you probably are okay. But uh, the best thing to do is really to talk to your employer. And if you don't have that kind of relationship, then you're taking somewhat of a risk. If you're in development, uh, as a development executive at a studio and you're writing a screenplay, well, if I were the employer, I'd probably want to own it or make some deal with you or, or fight you and say, it's my property. You're, you work are you in the ID de- IT department? Or are you in- <laughs> Okay. But it, 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 it gets you... It, they don't own something, you would have to pay me to them with, like, here's my idea or my Here's my idea. Please sign this thing. You don't own it. You know what I mean? Well, if they're in a similar, you know, if you want to give them a right of first refusal or something, that might sweeten the conversation. Being in operations, it depends also what your em- employee handbook says. Yeah. Happens all the happens all the time. I mean, again, sort of ideas as general concepts cannot be copyrighted. So it's it's your expression of that that is the copyrighted thing. And if they change enough elements, and it, I mean, how many times have you seen uh, Romeo and Juliet in various versions, right, on screen? I mean, it's it's. So the question is, with Romeo and Juliet, <clears throat> you know, obviously the underlying properties right. in the public domain, but. But are you taking something from, you know, West Side Story? Right. Like Spike Lee's doing a Romeo and Juliet version of 80s hip-hop. So I Well, yeah, I mean, again, the underlying rights, it's a bad example on my part to say Romeo and Juliet because it's a, fair, it's a public domain, you know, work. But, but there are other derivatives of that. Are they stealing from that or are they stealing from Romeo and Juliet? Like, right. you know, so. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, okay, yes, go ahead. Far-fetched, but you do everything, you get everything copyrighted, you live your ducks in the world, and now you need to sell the project. Where do you go from there? 
Like, I feel like there's a roadblock between, you know, you having a gold mine and then having the opportunity to give it to the people at the Netflix, at the Hulu, at the Amazon, at the Universal who can watch it for what you said. And so it's like, where is that boundary where you can now go from a finished product, ducks in a row, to getting it sold? So, I mean, and please put in your two cents as well. What I find this relation, uh, this business is about is about relationships. You got to start knowing people. You just got to start getting out there, meeting people, trying any way you can to get it in front of somebody that might have access to somebody else. And I think that probably, I mean, while we can talk about the business and legal and all that kind of stuff, the thing that gets things done most often in this business is having relationships and leveraging those relationships and nurturing those relationships and not only asking but giving and you know trying to figure all that out within the community. So whether or not you submit it to festivals or you, know, you do the traditional roots of trying to get it in front of people to see, however you can get someone to see it is a good thing. Um, and however you can... Have somebody put it in front of somebody where they, you know, put their stamp of approval on it. That that's worth something. Um, it's it's no. There's no exact science to this. I, I would also add that there are a couple of organizations that do have script libraries and conferences, like the Independent Feature Project, uh, New York Women in Film. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have panels and they have uh, panels with agents and managers and. Uh, I would say those two organizations, Big Apple, uh, are the organizations that you hang out with and go to some of the conferences and start meeting people. And if you're in a film school environment, I tell my students, get to know each other. It's shocking that people don't know each other in college. But in a 30, uh, you know, 30 students who are college age... I said, get to know everybody because you're all going to be assistants, and then you'll grow up to be, uh, you know, the the head of a department. And what I also say in terms of a very specific thing in casting, the assistants and a cast for a casting director know everybody. Okay, if and they want to experiment on their own. So what I would suggest is when you meet casting assistants, you say, look, can you talk to your boss? You know, make it really transparent. Can you talk to your boss about casting my short or casting my movie? But make sure they talk to the boss because otherwise they could get fired, right? So there are certain relationships that you could build with assistance, you know, assistance um, that will pay off at some point. And don't get discouraged. I mean, I've seen projects in development for decades I mean you know you think something should have gone 12 years ago and it doesn't get made and until so much later and it's you know it's been through five different people's hands and you know for, for whatever reason it just wasn't the right time it wasn't the right package it wasn't the right this it wasn't the right that but if you really believe in the project you have to keep going with it we have time for one last question up front go ahead Do I have to go back and, and sort of get the rights from the other people involved in the story? Or can I just, uh, if it's a narrative you know, film, can I just write it the way I 
received it, or, or do you, like, what is sort of what? Well, there are a couple of cases uh, that are around that basically, you know, sort of based on the First Amendment and the rights of creators. I think you should write your story, and if you're using names and characteristics, if you're using names, that's a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Change so forget name. about the real names. Second thing is you might want to put a compilation of characters together. Right. That they're composite characters. The, so you forget the names, you make composite characters, and there's even a case out of Pennsylvania that says even if that person looks like that person, sounds like that person, the adapter, the narrator, uh, I'm sorry, the narrative fic writer has broader rights. So keep it in the back of your mind about that you unlikely have to get the rights, but don't make them exactly the same names. Okay. Well, and you as the main character, are you using your real name or are you using you know, a fictitious character in place of yourself? I mean, it's helpful if it's fictitious, right? Because then there's no clear association worth for them to come out. Um, you'll also go through a process once you actually have a script and go into production before production. You'll go through the script clearance process, and they'll go through and check the names, and they'll do all kinds of things. And so there's an opportunity there to sort of catch things that may, you know, maybe there's only one person with that name in that town, and you clearly are in that town. Then your lawyer's probably going to tell you to change the name, right, and to do other things. So, Okay, so I want to thank our speakers, Rosalind Lichter and Gabrielle Ludlow. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you all for being here.